0: Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry, however, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. In today's episode, I answer your questions. We're going to talk about Pilates and endometriosis. Should you stabilize one part of the body whilst moving another in order to maximize the benefits of your training? Is sciatica linked to SI joint pain, particularly in pregnancy? And what can we do for those folk? And what's the difference between fast and slow twitch muscle fibers? And how can we target fast twitch fibers? And finally, how can you cue proper form for somebody, say in an aesthetic discipline like dance or gymnastics, without using internal cues? All that coming up. Hey, crew. Raf here, flying solo today because Chloe is on vocation. So uh, I thought I'd take this opportunity while Chloe's away to get through some of the backlog of questions that you have been sending through to us. So I'm going to do a listener questions episode, and uh, I'm trying to going to try and answer as many of them as I possibly can. Now, before we get into that, though, I imagine you'd probably like to know that uh, how I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing awesome. Um, And I hope that makes you happy to know that. And uh, I hope you're doing awesome as well, wherever you are, whatever you're doing uh, in the future out there, listening to this and, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing when you listen to this, I don't know, maybe you're washing the dishes as you listen to this. Maybe you're, you're exercising, maybe you're listening to it on the way to or from somewhere in the car. Maybe the, the dulcet tones of our voices are the best soporific that send you to sleep every night. Um, However you use it, however you listen to us, uh, I'm glad you find it valuable. So um, uh, yeah, here are these questions. I have a question from Katrina Nelson. It is about endometriosis. And Katrina says, uh, my daughter Gemma has endometriosis. She saw a gynecologist. And the doctor asked her some questions and Gemma told her she goes to Pilates. Doc- the doctor's response was that this is the worst thing for it. Um, Gemma asked if I could ask Breathe Education as she's quite upset about it. Gemma has doing, been doing Pilates for seven years. Thank you, Katrina. Well, Katrina, uh, I did a quick Google Scholar search on this topic and I found a 2014 systematic review called Endometriosis and Physical Exercises, a systematic review by Bonasher et al. from the journal Reproductive Biology and Endocrinology, 2014. And uh, what they found was, quote, um, six articles were included in this study. These studies tried to establish a possible relationship between the practice of physical exercise and the prevalence of endometriosis. The data available are inconclusive regarding the benefits of physical exercise as a risk factor for the disease, and no data exists about the potential impact of exercise on the course of endometriosis. Additional randomized studies are necessary, end quote. So that is uh, clearly inconclusive. Um, and I also found a more recent one, very recent in fact. It is from the 17th of May, 2021 from Hansen et al. Um, from the, the journal Acta Obstetrica et Gynecologica Scandinavica. And it is called Impact of Exercise on Pain Perception in Women with Endometriosis, A Systematic Review. And here's what they found. Six articles fulfilled the inclusion criteria and and were included in this systematic review. Concerning exercise, two studies showed significant decrease in pain, while the remaining studies showed either negative or no impact on pain relief. A meta-analysis could not be conducted due to considerable heterogeneity amongst the included studies. Conclusions the present review does not indicate any beneficial effect of exercise on pain in women with endometriosis. Thus, there is a need for randomized controlled trials with correct power calculations, well-defined study groups and training programs to be able to answer the question of whether exercise can improve the pain experience in patients with endometriosis, end quote. So I think it is pretty accurate to say, Katrina, that we really don't know if exercise has any positive or negative effect on endometriosis. And thus, uh, your doctor saying that Pilates is, "quote the worst thing for it, is not in line with current evidence, even going back to 2014. So uh, I would say, uh, given the lack of any evidence one way or the other, the default position should be that if she enjoys doing Pilates, well, go ahead and keep doing Pilates if it brings her Pleasure, and if she she feels better, you know, mentally or and or physically from it, I say wholeheartedly, in I endorse it. Go for it, um, and there's no reason to be you know concerned at all because we have absolutely no evidence that uh, there's any kind of harmful uh, effect of exercise on endometriosis, let alone a particular form of exercise. All right, so I hope that helps, Katrina, and um, maybe change to a different gynecologist. Uh, I have a question here from Nike. And Nike says, um, how important is it to stabilize a part of your body in order to work another specific part? For example, stabilizing your standing leg in a reformer lunge or stabilizing your body to do a forward arm circle on the reformer. Some movements require you to move your whole body and some require you to stabilize and One part and move the other part, and even though I do it when I work out myself, I don't know why I'm doing it. Besides the fact that I feel it's more efficient, I hope this question makes sense. Makes total sense, Nike. So basically, uh, in Pilates, I think often we say stabilise, and what we really mean is keep it still. So if we talk about you know keeping your pelvis still whilst you move your leg, for example, or uh, in footwork, or in you know, leg circles and straps. Or if we, um, you know, think about those examples that Nike mentioned, say front rowing or back rowing, where you're uh, moving your whole body plus your arms, or whereas more of a, um, say, the uh, chest expansion series where you're holding your body still and moving your arms. So you're kind of isolating one body part and dissociating the other body part is that kind of another way of that's talked about. Uh, and so the question is, you know, is that important? What is the benefit? The answer is probably not, but in some specific situations it's beneficial. So I would say for clients or you know for yourself who's you know if your goal is for like general overall strength and mobility, um well, probably just whole body movements are totally awesome for that. Um you know when you're holding, just say you're doing, say um, chest expansion on the reformer, right? Where you're kneeling, and your arms are pulling the straps, and you're, you're kneeling upright, um, and you're you're holding your body and your pelvis and your legs still, and you're pulling the straps with your arms. So basically, you're 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 holding your body still, you're moving your arms. Well, you're still working your body. So your your torso is still working, your abs are working, your back is working, your bums working, etc and you're working your arms but your arms are working concentrically and eccentrically you know they they're shortening and lengthening the muscles and then your torso your abs and back and butt and whatever are working isometrically so they're working without shortening or lengthening uh now not you know that's going to result probably in a similar amount of strengthening you know for both body parts uh whereas in something with like uh say a back rowing you know, where you're sitting on the carriage facing the pulleys and you're, you know, curling forwards with your torso, you're pulling with the straps, straightening up the torso, reaching the arms overhead, big circles with the torso, with the arms. So you're moving the torso and the arms throughout the back rowing exercise. Well, that's going to result in a very similar degree of strengthening of the back compared to say chest expansion. Um, But the difference is in the back rowing, you're actually moving your back through pretty close to into a full range of flexion and then up into neutral and maybe slight extension. And so you're going to get the advantage of increased mobility in the back because working the back through range of motion is going to enhance range of motion. So, uh, you know, if if you overall wanted improved strength and mobility, I would say, well, move your whole body and, you know, work your whole body. Is there anything wrong with doing chest expansion? Nah, it's an awesome exercise and it's a great challenge to your balance and, you know, control and all of that. And so, like I would say, go for it and do that as well. But just, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't always keep your torso still whilst you move your arms. Um, I don't think that's what you're asking though. Um, so, you know, so the kind of, all right, so the, broadly speaking, the strengthening benefit is about, I would say about equivalent, you know, depending on whether you're moving your arms and holding your torso still, or whether you're moving your arms and your torso just together or legs and pelvis or whatever it might be. Um, whereas if you're moving a body part, you're going to get the benefit of enhanced mobility for that body part as well. So, you know, overall, I would say I've got a slight bias towards moving the body part rather than holding it still, but. as long as you move it a bit and then you can hold it still a bit and you get the best of both worlds. So it'd be all good. Um, Where I would lean towards holding one part still and moving the other part. So sort of an isolate and dissociate strategy might be somewhere where maybe I'm thinking like post-surgical rehab where somebody maybe has uh, pronounced weakness or reduced range of motion, say in their shoulder. So they're coming back from shoulder surgery Um, And typically in that situation, people will kind of uh, compensate with their torso. For, you know, the lack of range and strength in the shoulder. So in other words, to, to move the arm up, they'll kind of lean their torso over to the side or, you know, lean their torso back to lift the arm in front of the body. To, so basically to kind of substitute the torso movement for some part of the arm movement. Um, and in a, in a rehabilitation situation where your specific goal is to increase shoulder mobility or shoulder strength, well, you probably will get a better result by you know, cueing or propping the person so that they don't move their torso, so that the arm has to work through full range and take the full load of the movement. Um, and but then as you progress through rehabilitation, you would be you know you would start to integrate those body parts together into more of a sort of a integrated <laughs> movement, because in life you know when we're doing life, we more often use multiple body regions synergistically, you know, there's not many situations in real life where you hold one body part still and move another body part. Um so, you know, it's more realistic to actually integrate um, you know, eventually. But, you know, when you're coming back from a, a relatively recent, you know, injury or surgery or whatever, it can be a good plan to isolate one body part and dissociate another so that you can kind of, you know, concentrate the work into the body part that you want to get it into as such um, but in you know in that situation where somebody has already full range and full strength in their shoulder well there's no need to to do that um yeah I mean the the reason why bodybuilders sometimes do it or do it a lot actually is because they want to sculpt their bodies they might want to work you know make one muscle a bit bigger without making the other muscle a bit bigger because they want to change the shape or the symmetry of their body right so they'll isolate one body part by sort of propping it with a bench or whatever, and then use the arm or the forearm or the wrist or the leg or whatever to do the exercise. So, you know, it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to isolate certain muscles, you know, it's sort of semi-possible to do that um, with this strategy. But, you know, I, th- I, think the context in which you're asking is just more of a general exercise situation, in which case I would say, nah, it doesn't really matter, but it can be kind of fun to, you know, challenge and a nice challenge for people to ask them to keep, you know, their torso still in, uh, chest expansion whilst they're moving their arms. You know, that can be a nice motor control challenge. So I wouldn't discourage you from doing it, but I just don't think there's anything magic about it in particular. Um, hope that helps. Uh, Rosha from Houston says, uh, Pilates elephants is really changing the way I teach and see the human body. So cheers for that. Well, cheers to you, Rosha. And I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I apologize if I'm not. Um, my question is about sciatic pain during pregnancy and if it's linked to SI joint pain. Also, is there anything that I can do to help our pregnant clients? Uh, what a great question. Well, so sciatic pain is just pain down the leg. Um, down the sort of the back and side of the leg, um, potentially all the way down to the to the foot, uh, which is the the location of the sciatic nerve, which exits the spine um, at uh, L four, five, L 5s one, and I think L three, L four as well, and then goes down basically through your butt, behind the piriformis muscle, and down the side of you know down the back slash side of your leg, and down the side of your calf, and down to your little toe side of your foot. Um, and so, if you, uh, you know, typically sciatica um, is the, you know, we some it's called sciatica most by most people. Sometimes it's called radicular pain, it means the same thing. Um, and typically, you know, it's it's thought to be caused by some kind of um, irritation of the sciatic nerve, generally where it exits the spinal canal. So the the gap between adjacent vertebrae, so L3-4 or L4-5 or L5-S1, um, there's a little gap there of foramen and sometimes if there's inflammation or if there's a disc bulge or if there's osteophyte growth there um, or if there's stenosis, narrowing of the spinal canal, you know, if there's, there's a bunch of things that can kind of be associated with sciatica. Um, and so if that's kind of irritates the nerve root there where it exits the spinal canal, um, it can send symptoms to the brain as if there's pain in the leg, um, whereas in reality there's actually nothing wrong in the leg. It's actually, a, you know, a, an irritation of the nerve a bit higher up towards the spine. Um, and there is there's an there's a diagnosis called uh, piriformis syndrome, which you know, many of you may have heard of, which um, you know holds that the sciatic nerve can be irritated or entrapped um, by the piriformis muscle. And piriformis syndrome is a controversial diagnosis, as in, um, large number of researchers, you know, don't believe it's an actual thing. Um, and, and probably equally large number of researchers vehemently believe it is an actual thing. So hence it's a controversial diagnosis. So I would say, um, is it a real thing or not? We don't really know. It's an open question at the moment. Um, so, uh, you know, is is sciatica related to SI joint pain? Well, here's the thing. It's really, really hard to know if pain is coming from a particular physical structure. So it is absolutely possible to say this person has pain in the region of the SI joint, the sacroiliac joint, the joint between the sacrum, you know, the base of the spine and the ilium, the iliac bone, part of your pelvis. So it is absolutely possible for somebody to point to their sacroiliac joint and say, I have pain there, and for that to be a true statement. But it is currently, with our current technology, it is not possible for us to determine that the pain comes from the sacroiliac joint. Uh, So you can have an experience of pain in that area. Um, for many potential reasons and might, you know, might be related to inflammation, might be re- related to nerve irritation, might be related to something that's not even local to the joint, like sensitization of the central nervous system. And in fact, uh, there is one study of radiofrequency denervation, which I'll link to in the show notes, where they had people had sacroiliac joint pain um, and they actually, you know, radio know, radiofrequency denervation. So in other words, they used x-rays to destroy, burn the nerves in their sacroiliac joint. So they they literally had no nerve endings in their sacroiliac joint, and it didn't help their, quote, sacroiliac joint, end quote, pain. So um, now, they, that's not to suggest that these people were making it up or imagining it or anything. The, their pain was very real, and their experience was that the pain was in the sacroiliac joint region, but if we can burn the nerves out of that region so that it's literally not possible to receive a nerve impulse from the sacroiliac joint because there are no nerves there and that doesn't change your pain, well, that strongly suggests that the pain is not coming from the sacroiliac joint. So, um, yeah, that's what I mean when I say it's 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 a really difficult question to answer and we don't really know enough about it at the moment. Um, so, uh, you know, in relation to uh, pregnancy. So, um, what happens in pregnancy is the incidence of pelvic girdle pain. So, that's, um, you know, pain anywhere in the lower back or, you know, symphysis pubis or sacroiliac joint or sacrum region um, uh, is more common amongst pregnant women than it is in the general population. Uh, and it's, you know, many people think that that is uh, related to the Relax the release of the hormone relaxin, um, which um, one of its main effects is to uh, loosen the you know ligaments all around the body. and makes ligaments more stretchable, more flexible, more elastic, uh, and which which gives a little bit of more mobility to all of the joints of the body and including the pelvic joints. And so uh, there's this idea that that makes your pelvis quote unstable, um, which is not really supported by evidence. Um, so we know that relaxant is a thing and is in fact released during pregnancy. And um, even non-pregnant people have relaxin, you know, men and non-pregnant women have relaxin in the system, but uh, pregnant women have way more relaxant than non-pregnant people. Um, and uh, so relaxin goes up in pregnancy and also the incidence of pelvic pain goes up in pregnancy, but the two are not related. They're just, they're correlated, but they're not causally related. Uh, and we know this from a bunch of experiments where we basically um, measure the serum levels of relaxin in, in women's body fluid. So, you know, we just basically stick a needle in their vein and draw out some blood and measure the level of relaxin in that blood. And then we measure, and we ask them about their pelvic pain. And we find that, you know, women have differing degrees of relaxin. In their blood, you know, all pregnant women have more relaxin than all non-pregnant women, but you know, some pregnant women have more than other pregnant women, um, and the same with pelvic pain. You know, in general, pregnant women have more pelvic pain than non-pregnant women, and some pregnant women have more pelvic pain, some have less, and some have none. Um, and so, some pregnant women have more relaxants, some have less, some have none. Some pregnant women have more pelvic pain, some have less, some have none, and those two. The, the status of those two things just is not related. So if you're a pregnant woman and you have more relaxin, that doesn't correlate with you necessarily having more pain. There are women who have more pain who have less relaxin and vice versa. So um, that that there are also other studies that we've seen where the uh, we have you know, postpartum women um, with uh, diagnosed sacroiliac joint instability uh, who stand up inside a dual X-ray, uh, sorry, a a stereometric, uh, fluoroscopic x-ray. So basically a stereo movie, uh, x-ray machine, um, and, uh, measured, you know, then do they stand to a one-legged stance and they measure the movement of their pelvic joints. And what they find under that s- circumstances is ba- basically the pelvic joints essentially don't move. Like they move tenths of one degree, um, on the painful side and the non-painful side equally. So uh, movement at the sacroiliac joint doesn't seem to be related to pain in the region of the sacroiliac joint during or after pregnancy, although pain is more prevalent in pregnant women than in non-pregnant people. So long answer, short question. (laughs) Um, Sciatica, is it related to uh, sacroiliac joint pain? I would say after having said all of that, uh, mechanically, probably not. But is it related? Probably. So um, we know that pregnant women have more pelvic girdle pain. We also know they have more of every sort of pain. Pregnant women have more pain than non-pregnant people. Um, Pregnant women have what's called widespread tissue hypersensitivity. So in other words, everything hurts more. Stuff that doesn't normally hurt, hurts, and stuff that normally hurts, hurts more. So, you know, if you poke a pregnant woman with a needle, it hurts more than when you poke a non-pregnant woman in the same body part with the same amount of pressure. If you stick a, you know, cold metal thing or a hot metal thing on a pregnant woman's forearm, it hurts more than when you stick the exact same temperature of metal thing on a non-pregnant person's forearm. So... Uh, Pregnant women have widespread tissue hypersensitivity. They're more sensitive to chemicals, to pressure, to temperature. Um, And uh, this is all over their body, not just in the pelvis and not just people with pelvic pain. Um, So it seems like pregnancy is characterized by increased susceptibility to pain, including sciatica um, and sacroiliac joint um, pain. So... Um, are they related? Yeah, they probably are related, but they're probably not causally related. They're probably more likely both caused by a third thing, which is the generalized hypersensitivity um, that is associated with pregnancy, which is probably just a natural kind of protective mechanism in pregnancy, right? So we just want to be a little bit more careful during pregnancy uh, than usual. And that you know, hypersensitivity is just nature's way of reminding us to do that. So um is there anything I can do to help my pregnant clients I would say uh the pain is not is almost certainly not an indicator of any kind of damage or danger um but it can be you know debilitating just the pain itself so um if there are movements that your pregnant women particular you know find particularly painful I would just say reduce the range of motion or reduce the load you know typically things like side splits you know might be a problem for some people, in which case I'll just reduce the range or reduce the load, or if it's totally intolerable, just avoid the exercise. Um, but for women for whom they their pain is either tolerable or it's you know, not not painful, I would say just go for gold and 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 you know reassure them and encourage them to be uh, you know fearless. You know, I'm not talking about being crazy like doing squats on a football. (laughs) I'm talking about just not being worried about the fact that they're pregnant and that they'll break, you know, from exercise. So, um, definitely, you know, looking after their balance and thing and not overheating them and things like that are important and not lying them on their back after the second trimester. But, um, in terms of, you know, is it dangerous to do splits or things like that? Um, uh, as long as you've taken care of the balance side of things, and that's not an issue. Um, no, it's perfectly safe and you don't need to do anything, but if it's painful, Just, you know, reduce the range, reduce the load or avoid the movement until they feel better when they're not pregnant anymore. Hope that helps, Rosha. And um, thanks for reaching out all the way from Texas. Wow. These are great questions. Before I answer another question, though, let's take a quick break. Hey, imagine this. When you meet a new client, you know exactly what to do. You're confident because you already have a plan, a plan that's so powerful and versatile that you can use it with any client. Big clients, small clients, clients with pain in weird body parts, clients with diagnoses ending in itis, osis or opathy, clients with neurogenic pain, whatever that is. Well, actually, neuro just means nerve and genic means produced by. So neurogenic pain is just pain that is produced by nerves. Anyway, clients with balance issues, clients with pain in any body part or in many body parts, all with this one weird trick. No, I'm just joking. There is no one weird trick, of course, that's going to solve everybody's problems. But if you come and study with us in our Diploma of Clinical Pilates, you will genuinely learn how to help people with all of those issues that I mentioned, plus many more. You'll learn a deep understanding of how the human body works and of modern pain science and evidence-based best practice. And you'll learn how to apply that knowledge to genuinely help people with their musculoskeletal issues. This is a one-year in-depth program. I would love to have you in the program. It's 100% online, no travel required at all. You can do it totally from your lounge room. If you're interested, I'd love to have you. Come and join us. Click on the link in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you in class. Go on, click on the link. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Allison says... How do you teach proper form without giving people body hangups? I'm on board with not stressing over these things when teaching in public and I'm slowly giving less of a shit when I watch back videos of me. But in a world where aesthetics are important, i.e. dance, these things matter, e.g. not winging scapula, finding neutral spine. These things that the dancers I teach know and I would love to teach in a way that doesn't cause stress. What a great question. So, Uh, so I would say for things like, you know, dance, where it is about the aesthetic, uh, it's still possible to teach, uh, it might not be possible to teach external cues, you know, for like, don't wing your scapula, for example. Um, but you can teach more, you can teach implicitly. So rather than sort of, you know, naming the body part, for example, or saying don't wing your scapula, you, you could uh, give a hands-on correction, you know, you could kind of flatten the person's scapula onto their um, rib cage without giving them an instruction. And then you could just say, hey, do you feel that? That's how I want you to, you know, that's how I want you to, to be in this in this position. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know diddly squat about ballet, um, but, uh, you know, I imagine from what I've seen on Black Swan, um and fame that uh it involves uh you know the dancer you know sometimes maybe finding a position and then the instructor or the choreographer you know sort of correcting them into the correct you know shape in that position uh and you know so i think that's 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 perfectly good and acceptable you don't have to actually mention anything about their body there it's just like you know this bit goes here and this bit goes here and this bit goes there um and i guess you could use you know ra- again rather than using like specific cues about muscles or you know so on you could use words that describe the 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 idea or the emotion or the vibe that you're going for so you could you know if someone's too tight you could say you know languorous or softer or you could use an, a, a a a verbal imagery that encourages them to you know, find the right vibe, like a cat or, you know, I mean, I don't know <laughs> what the right um, metaphors are for ballet, but, you know, I'm sure you'll, you'll know a lot better than I will. But uh, yeah, so you could, you could use those kinds of things. Um, you could, you know, use words like reach, like lengthen, like stretch, like elongate, like float, like, you know, So you could use a lot of those, you could use cues about landing softly and quietly, um, you know, balance imaginary things on top of your head slash foot slash small of your back, whatever it might be, you know, paint circles on the ceiling with your hand, conducting an invisible orchestra. Um, Yeah, I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, I'm having a good jam on this now. And so I'm starting to think like, well, yeah, you could probably have a pretty good jam on this if you just you know, by jam, I just mean muck around with it and start to throw some stuff up against the wall and see what sticks. Um, and so I think with some combination of, you know, hands-on uh, feedback to, to people um, without necessarily mentioning body parts, but just, you know, giving them tactile feedback on their body parts. Um, and, you know, evocative cues evoking a mood or a vibe and also more specific imagery that invites them to lengthen a particular body part without saying that body part. So imagine an apple bouncing on top of your head, reach the apple towards the ceiling sort of thing, um, or paint a circle on the ceiling with your toe or whatever it might be. So yeah, I hope that helps. And, you know, I think it's, it's not, it's not, um, I think the name of the game is not to, you know never mention a body part again as long as we shall live so help us god um i think you know like it's okay if you say the word shoulder blade every every so often in there i think also the the you know in terms of giving hang ups well it also is like it's not just what you say it's how you frame it right so if you say like oh you you know you wing your scapula let's try and fix it well that you know you're telling someone that they're broken and that they're doing it wrong whereas if you you know say like, hey, in this movement, you know, feel, you know, and you, and you just gently elevate their scapula for them, you know, feel this lightness like this, this is how I want you to feel, right? That's not telling them they're doing it bad when they're not doing it that way, it's just saying, hey, in this movement, here's the. Here, this is the correct feeling, this is the correct experience for you, um, for you to produce the right experience for the audience. Um, yeah, so I hope that helps. And um, any dancers out there who are right across this, I'd love to hear your input. Andrea says, osteoarthritis in the neck. Does the neck need extra warm-up before exercise? Uh, Well, uh, general recommendations, Andrea, for osteoarthritis are yes, extended warm-up. So osteoarthritis, um, um, osteo means bone, arthra means, arthro is joint, and itis means inflammation. So osteoarthritis means inflammation of the bony of the joints of the bones, um, and osteoarthritis, um, different to rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, osteoarthritis is uh, you know, it's partly genetic and it's partly lifestyle related. Um, and you know, when I was a kid and trained up, they taught us that osteoarthritis was a wear and tear condition. And you may have heard that um, it's now thought to be uh, actually that's not the case. Uh, it's probably um, you know partly genetic. Um, It's partly related to lifestyle factors like um, obesity and smoking, um, and it's partly related to physical activity, or actually lack of physical activity. So actually, low physical activity is a risk factor for osteoarthritis. Um, So... Uh, as is very very high physical activity is also a risk factor. So um, moderate, phys- moderate, moderate, you know, like when I say very very high, I mean like ridiculous amounts of running marathons and things like that. Um, but you know, anything that a regular person is going to be doing, including going to Pilates five times a week, falls into the moderate category. So uh, basically, unless you're talking with you know about a mad keen you know marathon ultra distance runner or something like that, more is going to be better when it comes to exercise for osteoarthritis. Um, And uh, you'd say you're not going to do any damage um, to an osteoarthritic joint by exercising it, Um, but it will to reduce, uh, in fact, uh, in fact, moving osteoarthritic joints through full range can reduce symptoms and uh, improve function. Uh, You won't reverse the course of the disease or anything, but it it can improve symptoms and reduce the impact of the disease. So you can improve function despite the disease. Uh, and so uh, recommendations for working with folk who have osteoarthritis, whether it's in the neck or the hip or the knee or you know, wherever, include an extended warm-up, so maybe up to 10 minutes for a gradual warm-up, which should, you know, start with very light full range movements. So, you know, if it's the neck, I would do rotation side to side. I would do side bends. I would do, you know, flexion forwards, extension backwards, neck rolls, you know, starting very light within your pain-free range of motion, gradually increasing the range, increasing the load. Um, And then just over 10 minutes, I would progress that up to, you know, full exercise. Now, I'm not saying spend 10 minutes warming up your neck, right? But if you're doing a whole body workout, including neck, I would spend, you know, some part of that 10 minutes warming up your neck. Um, And the warm-up should look just like gentle, full-range movements, gradually progressing in load and or speed and or range um, until you get to doing the full workout. Uh, Also, an extended cool-down. Other things that can help are um, if you're taking pain medication, typically you know the pain medication is more active at a certain time of day, so if you take it at a certain time, maybe like an hour after you take it, is your you know your least pain in the day or whatever. So that might be a good time to exercise. Other people find that mornings best or evenings best or whatever. So that's good as well. Um, and uh, there's no particular reason to avoid impact or load or anything, um, uh, just as tolerated. You know by basically tolerable pain. So um, strengthening is great. Moving through full range of motion is great. A little bit of extra warm up and cool down probably also great. Hope that helps, Andrea. Katie Grocott asks, what are exercises for plantar fasciitis, please, for my friend? Uh, Well, Katie, I've got some bad news for your friend, which is we don't really have any great exercise for plantar fasciitis. Uh, Plantar is the bottom surface of your foot. Fascia is connective tissue, so ligaments, tendons, etc. and itis is inflammation. So plantar fasciitis is inflammation of the ligaments and the fascia on the bottom of the foot. People typically have heel pain, like at the front of the underneath part of the heel. That's the most common location of it, but it can be anywhere in the arch or on the heel. Um, and sometimes people are diagnosed with bone spurs and things, but we find that a lot of people who don't have any pain also have bone spurs. So it's more just an irritation of the fascia. Um, In fact, I think we're calling it now these days fasciosis because it's not really an inflammation um, necessarily and osis just means something wrong, but we're not quite sure what. So um, basically what we're saying is they've got a pain in there. Maybe we just call it plantar heel pain um, and we're not quite sure why. Um, There is some suggestion that heavy strength training of the plantar surface, so basically loaded calf raises with your toes on a thing, on a um, towel um, are, you know, slightly helpful um, and that stretching is slightly helpful. But when I say slightly, I'm putting, you know, a real big emphasis on the slightly. Um, and so uh, there's also some evidence from memory that um, cushioned insoles are you know, might be of some benefit. But you don't need, I don't think you need special podiatrist ones. I think you just buy them from, you know, the local um shoe store um, or off Amazon or whatever, um, just to reduce the, the pressure on the, on the irritated region. Uh, and it becomes a case of, you know, uh, in the words of the immortal Greg Lehman, calm shit down and then build shit back up again. So basically, whatever activities are irritating, um, you know, reduce those activities either in you know, frequency or duration or intensity or all of the above, and then wait till it comes down a bit, have a you know, few days or weeks, and then gradually build those activities up again within pain tolerance. Um, you can sort of uh, make it a bit easier. Some, some hints might be, uh, you know, get some cushioned insoles from the local chemist or foot store. Um, if you wanted to, you know, do a half hour walk, but you find you can't walk, walk for more than 15 minutes without pain, well, what about doing two 15-minute walks? Um, You know, at at different times of day. So you know, things like breaking your exercise up um, can be good. Getting um, you know really super comfortable padded shoes can be great. Not because uh, non-padded shoes are bad for you, but just because uh, you know if it's irritated, the padding can reduce the irritation. So I hope that helps. I'm sorry, I don't have a silver bullet for you for plantar fasciitis. All right, we've got time for one more, and that is from Ashley, and Ashley says. I'm trying to understand from a practical perspective about slow and fast twitch fibers. I understand that slow twitch are endurance fibers. What calls in fast twitch? Is it just a response to our body needing more energy and or is it a response to muscle force needed to perform the action? Is there any relationship to how fast our body is moving or just how quickly the muscle needs to contract to respond? When working with someone who's trying to improve performance in an anaerobic sport how do we best create exercises to call on fast twitch fibers higher load than they can perform fewer reps on oh, great questions Ashley. All right so what is the difference between slow and fast twitch fibers so we all have um, you know, several different sorts of muscle fibers in our body but they can broadly be, Categorized into slow and fast twitch. Um, And basically, that is because they literally twitch slowly or twitch faster. Um, And so, uh, you know, when muscles contract. When a muscle fibre contracts, it literally, if you stimulate it with a nerve impulse, it literally just twitches. So it turns on and then turns off almost immediately, and the twitch in the twitch it contracts, um, and it contracts at a certain speed. Um, and I couldn't tell you what that speed is, but it's in some number of metres per second, for example. Um, and slow twitch fibres contract more slowly; they twitch more slowly. So, you know, so if we if we cut a you know muscle fibre out of a frog after we humanely dispatch the frog, and then stick an electrode on each end of it, put a current through it, bam, it twitches, right? So it twitches once and then it relaxes. Uh, and so for our muscles to contract continually, we just continually bombard them with nerve impulses, right? So we just bombard them one after the other and then it twitches, 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 and it keeps shortening. Uh, so slow twitch muscle fibers contract more slowly and they are also more fatigue resistant because broadly speaking, they use oxidative um, Uh, you know, aerobic mechanisms. So they produce, they liberate energy uh, mainly from, you know, fat and carbohydrate from, by basically burning it with oxygen. Um, And that is a very efficient process, but it's not very fast. So they they, don't, they can't produce a lot of energy very quickly, but they can produce energy for a prolonged period of time. So you can use your slow-twitch fibers to, you know, run a marathon or stand up all day. Whereas fast-twitch fibers, they predominantly burn carbohydrate and they burn it as what's called a glycolytic anaerobic energy production, so basically they don't necessarily use oxygen, they use as much oxygen to break down that uh, glycogen, uh, the the glucose that they use for their fuel, and they produce a lot, so it's a lot less efficient, but a lot quicker. So they produce a lot of energy very quickly, but then they get up all these waste products from the um, anaerobic glycolysis and they get fatigued and have to stop. So it's kind of like the tortoise and the hare, with the tortoise being the slow twitch and the hare being the fast twitch. So uh, we all have, you know, some slow twitch fibres and some fast twitch fibres in every muscle in our body. Right? Every muscle has some pro- proportion of slow twitch and some proportion of fast twitch, uh, and in different people that varies, and in different muscles within the same person that also varies. Now, muscles are made of a whole bunch of muscle fibres. So there might be, you know, let's say a couple of thousand fibres in one muscle, say in your thigh muscle, um, and those fibres are innervated by you know, nerves are fed. You know, turned on and off by nerves, and it might be that there's one nerve, one motor nerve. You know, going from your brain to your muscle, um, that you know might innovate a small bundle of slow twitch fibers, and another motor nerve that innovates another small bundle of slow twitch fibers, and all of the and eventually and so on and so on until all of the bundles of slow twitch fibers are innovated, and then there's a mus uh, a, a a nerve that innovates a much larger bundle of fast twitch fibers and another one that innovates an even larger bundle of fast twitch fibers. So you've got all these small bundles of slow twitch fibers and these increasingly larger bundles of fast twitch fibers. So you might have like 20 slow twitch fibers in one bundle and then you might have like 500 fast twitch uh, fibers in in another bundle. And so obviously slow twitch fibers one produce less force because they contract more slowly and there's fewer of them in a bundle uh, and that bundle is called a motor unit. You know, it's, it's all of the fibres plus the nerve that innervates it. So, so those slow-twitch motor units produce low force, okay, and the fast-twitch motor units produce high force. Um, and the slow-twitch motor units are smaller because there's fewer fibres in them, and the fast-twitch motor units are bigger, physically wider, because there are more fibres in them. Um, and so we have these slow, small, Low power motor units and these fast, large, high power motor units. Um, And so, when we want to contract that muscle, we send a message from our brain. We we fire a number of you know nerves depending on how much power we need from the muscle. So, if we just need a little bit of power, we turn on a couple of those you know low, what they're called, low threshold motor units, those slow twitch small bundles, right? We just need a couple of little fibers firing to do a light work, you know, maybe just holding us upright as we stand. Um, we just use a couple of those slow twitch motor units. Whereas if we need more power, we'll start to call on the fast twitch units. Um, and the, here's the thing, we always recruit those, Motor units in the same order. It's called Henneman's size principle. So when we uh, w- when we just need a little bit of force, we always rec- recruit, you know, a couple of slow twitch, you know, low threshold units. But it's always the same couple, right? And then the next one that's uh, recruited is always the same, and the next one is always the same, and the next one's always the same. And so there's some really, and they're recruited from smallest to largest, right? Starting with the smallest, and then we further and further as we go and we need more and more force we can we contract increasingly large muscle uh, motor units and so th- what that means is that the largest motor units the ones the big bundles of fast twitch fibers only ever get recruited in a maximal effort right so a maximal effort is where you are moving explosively so mo- you are contracting your muscle as fast as possible or when you are lifting more than 85% of your maximum, you know, one rep max, your maximum ability to lift once. So the only time you're going to get, you know, full motor unit recruitment from the get-go, you're the only time you're going to recruit those, you know, big bundles of fast twitch fibers is if you're moving at max, you're moving the limb as fast as possible. So accelerate, sorry, not moving the limb, accelerating the limb as fast as possible, or when you're lifting something that is, you know, 85% or more of your one rep max. And 85% of your one rep max is about six reps or seven reps for most people, max. Um, So there are two ways that you can recruit fast twitch fibers, and that is moving explosively with light loads, because you can't move explosively with heavy loads, right? Because when you lift something really heavy, you have to move slowly. Or you can lift really, really heavy things beyond 85% of your one rep max. Um, But each of those things is going to promote a different set of adaptations. So if you move light things really explosively, you'll get good at moving light things really explosively. So you won't increase your maximum strength much, but you'll increase your speed and explosivity and your power. Whereas if you move really heavy things, um, you will get really good at moving really heavy things. You'll get stronger, but you won't get faster. In fact, you'll probably get slower. So, uh, as you, as you work with really heavy weights, there tends to be a fiber type shift from, anyway, we won't go into the fiber type shifts, but some of your fast twitch fibers become slightly slower twitch fibers in order to maximize your strength. Um, and that tends to reduce maximum speed. Um, so the upshot of this is if you want to improve athletic performance, well, you should do tasks that mimic as closely as possible the type of performance you're trying to improve because athletic performance is not generic, right? So if you're talking about athletic performance in, say, a a a boxer, right, someone who has to move their arms really quickly, okay, but they don't need to deadlift three times their body weight, right? There's no benefit to a boxer to being able to do that, but there is a benefit to a boxer to being able to move their hands incredibly quickly. So you would work that person with light weights, and, you know, focus on explosive movements. Whereas for somebody who's more of a strength athlete, say a wrestler, uh, um, you would focus, you know, you would still focus on explosive movements to a certain extent, but you'd also focus on strength because that would also be important. So you would be doing heavy slow work as well. And there'd be some kind of trade-off between those two things. Uh, If you're somebody who needs to jump and leap and sprint, you know, like a dancer or a runner or, you know, a a sprint runner, well, you would be focusing on explosivity. So you wouldn't be so much doing like heavy, slow work as you would be doing like lightly loaded explosive work, you know, jumping and hopping and leaping and clapping push-ups and those types of things. Um, And the last thing is, you know, if you're working to improve explosive speed and power – you're much better to stop f- uh, quite a distance before failure. Um, because as you work closer to failure, um, that is when you start to get that fiber type shift from uh, you know, the, the faster fibers shift to being a slightly slower type of fast twitch fiber. So um, if your primary goal is speed and power, I would do explosive work with light load, say like 20 to 40% of your one rep max you know, so pretty light, um, and, you know, going to accelerate as fast as possible, like jumps and hops and leaps and explosive punches and throws and things like that. Um, and I would stop well short of failure. So never work to fatigue because that will inhibit speed gains. Whereas if you're going to work like maximum strength, um, it's still probably a good plan to stop a couple of reps short of failure, but it's not as important. And I would work much closer to your one rep max. I'd work like 80 to 90% of your one rep max. Um, And you'll be doing like, you know, two or three or four rep or five reps, you know, each set. Um, Yeah. So I hope that helps. Well, that's all I've got time for today. I'm I hope uh, that that was of interest to you. I'd love to um, continue to do these and I've got plans to do a couple more while Chloe's away. So please do keep sending me your questions. Um, The other thing that has uh, happened over the last few weeks is there've been a lot of questions on business. So questions about um, pay for Pilates instructors, both from the instructors and from studio owners, you know, asking kind of what do I think is fair or reasonable or how do I ask for more or how do I offer less? Um, how do I determine, you know, what's what's the right rate? Um, and as well as, you know, marketing and uh, profitability for businesses and and you know, dealing with staff and how to find work and how to, differentiate yourself uh, from the competition so you don't have to compete on price. Um, So there have been a whole bunch of questions and conversations around those topics over the last few weeks. Um, And I will be doing a separate Q&A to address a bunch of those and um, or a separate um, listener uh, questions episode of Pilates Elephants to uh, address those. So I would love to have your questions on business as well um, or your thoughts on business uh, and, uh, I look forward to the next time that we get to have a, I don't know, it's not really a conversation. It's a virtual conversation, but, um, it, I guess it is kind of a conversation cause you're sending in a question and I'm sending it over an answer. Um, and then maybe send me another question. So I guess that's, that qualifies as a conversation. So I hope you're well. I hope you enjoyed this. And, um, I, uh, look forward to the next time we get to do this. See ya.